My name's Alexandra Coglin. I'm a music critic and journalist, and I'll be hosting tonight's panel discussion. Um, I will bring out the panel and introduce them in just a second. But first, I've been asked to give you a very quick introduction to Gluck's Orpheus and Eurydice. So the legend of Orpheus and Eurydice first emerges in the 6th century BC, but it's not until the 29th century with Virgil's Georgics that it really takes the form that we know it in today. It's a story about the power of music, and not just to enchant and beguile, but to dissolve violence and dissent, to defy even death itself. It's no wonder that composers through the centuries have been drawn to it. It seems like no coincidence that the birth of opera as we understand it today in 1607 um, happened with, with an Orpheus opera, with Monteverdi's Orfeo. And again, it seems like no coincidence that when 150 years later, opera was badly in need of a rebirth, it was once again to Orpheus that it returned. Orpheus, of course, the son of the sun god Apollo, such a talented musician that he could tame wild animals and charm even the gods themselves. He meets and marries the beautiful Eurydice and they live happily for a while until one day when she's out in the fields, she's bitten by a snake and she dies. Rather than live without his beloved wife, Orpheus vows to go down to the underworld to bring her back. He braves the Furies, he braves the three-headed dog Cerberus, and he finds his wife. But there's a condition for her return to Earth. If at any point during the long journey he turns to look at her, he will lose her all over again. So they set off, but even knowing what he knows, Orpheus can't quite restrain himself. He turns to take just one glimpse of his wife, and in that moment, she dies all over again. Now, I mentioned earlier a rebirth, so let's move back from a second death to a second birth. But the question is why, in the middle of the 18th century, was opera in need of a rebirth? It was a genre very much at the end of the road. Both composers and audience were becoming increasingly frustrated with a genre that had moved so far from its original ambitions. What had started out as a way of expressing human truths and emotions through song had become so embellished and elaborated, so much a vehicle for celebrating the singer, the performer, and so much less about the musical truths. It was hollowed out. It was a beautifully decorated shell, but with absolutely nothing at the center. Now, someone who knew all about this was the composer André Crétry, who was working at this point. And we can really feel um, his, his anguish here. He asks, how is it that the Italians have no good serious opera? During the nine or ten years I lived in Rome, I never saw one succeed. So the idea of Italian opera from being this sort of great white cultural hope to something we treat with, some, with slightly more suspicion, we can really see there. And then in our own century, Ernest Newman, the musicologist who's never one to mince his words, uh, has something more to say about the development of opera. He writes, In Italian theatres, the musician's sole function was as a kind of embroiderer to adorn weak and foolish libretti, while deep thoughts and serious feelings were hampered by the necessity of doing nothing to offend. There's quite a lot to unpack there, this issue of, first, the embroidery, you know, composers fiddling around on the surface rather than really getting down to the nub of the matter. Foolish libretti, stories and characters we can't believe in. And then this issue about not offending anyone, rich patrons or paying public. Um, opera was in a bit of a pickle. I just wanted to give you an idea of what it sounded like at this point. And um, this is really the height of Baroque. This is Hassa, 1733, his opera Siroe, about the king of Persia. <laughs> Uh, 
you see what I mean? Opera has really become quite excessive at this point. Um, a new age needed a new style of opera, and the 18th century was the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, the age in which the most fundamental institutions of society, the church um, and monarchy itself, were being questioned, replaced by values that emerged from science, from rationality. And these new values had great implications for the arts. Suddenly the arts were more than just entertainment, more than a way for you know, rich people to pass the time between finishing their dinner and going to bed. They had an intellectual function, they had a moral function as well. Um, but at this point, this was all very theoretical. We got, uh, we've had people like Francesco Algarotti, the wonderful polymath, he's an art historian, a critic, an essayist, taking these principles of the Enlightenment and developing them with relation to culture. In 1755, he publishes his essay on opera, and he's positing a vision for what this form could be. He wants opera that delights the eyes and ears, that rouses up and affects the hearts of an audience, but without the risk of sinning against reason or common sense. So we want all of that passion and fire we've just heard from the Hassa, but we want it allied to characters and situations that we can believe in. That's all very well theoretically, but up until this point, that's all it really is. We've had no one come along and try and write a new reform opera until Christoph Willibald Gluck arrives. Now, he's a German composer, but he was active all across Europe during his career, based in Italy, in France, in England at different points, and crucially in Vienna for 20 years from 1550. It was here that he meets Count uh, Durazzo, who was a passionate believer in Algarotti's philosophies of reform. And it was Durazzo who sort of match-made professionally the relationship between Calzabigi, the librettist, and Gluck, the composer, bringing them together with the commission for Orpheus and Eurydice. Helpfully for us, they left us with a document, a sort of manifesto for what they were hoping to achieve. And this was actually written in the preface to Alceste, the next opera they collaborated on, but all the principles are the same for Orfeo. They write, I have striven to restrict music to its true office of serving poetry and following the situation of the story without interrupting the action or stifling it with a useless superfluity of ornaments. In short, I have sought to abolish all the abuses against which good sense and reason have long cried out in vain. Now, rather than go on to talk about the opera, I think I should bring out the experts and they can explain to you how far Kaltsabiji and Gluck were successful. So please join me in welcoming designer Lizzie Clacken, ENO staff director Ruth Knight, and chorus master James, sorry, Henshaw. <laughs> you're in a unique position in that you're working across all four operas this season. Um, what is it about Gluck's that sets it apart? What is distinctive about his angle on this particular story? Well, um, I didn't know the opera before uh, I started working on it, so listening to the music for the first time was extraordinary. You know, I think, for me, of all the four that I'm working on, on this season, this is the most sort of melodic and romantic and beautiful. Um, it's full of emotion. You know, listening to it is just really sort of releases the kind of creativity for me as a designer. And in terms of the, I suppose, the arc of the season, if we come to all four of them, do we see a connection in your designs? Is this all taking place in the same world or are they very much discreet and self-contained? I think that it's not been my job, actually, to create an arc between the four. I think, in some respects, the curation of this season, programmed in this way, is 
the, is the, the, the thread and actually it's up to the audience to find what might be the links. H having said that, you know, there's, I have tried to find some visual motifs to take through the season. And um, I have had, I've tried to find elements in common and sort of colors to work with. And then also so that the operas can all work against those things as well. But very much, you know, these are four directors with incredibly different aesthetics. I mean, the music is all incredibly different. And actually to try and find some sort of magic pill, which they'd all sit in, I think would have been a disservice. So. My job has been to sort of allow them really to to be their own identities, and then you know, of course, if people come and see all four, well, then that's an amazing thing, and then people can find um, something, how, you know, how we lead through that. But I don't know if people will do that, whether they be, they just come to one or maybe two. Who knows? You mentioned some motifs running through. Can you give us any hint as to what what we should look out for, really? Well, and, and I think you know the. the this is where the clues are in, in the sort of librettos and the music. So there's lots of motifs of, of water and air and um, sort of ethereal qualities. Um, all these run through the operas in different ways. And you can see they manifest in the different shows in different ways, obviously in comedic ways and, and very sort of serious ways. And then, you know, I've, I've tried to find like a, a palette. You know, I've used a lot of gray <laughs> in the set, but this is, this is a sort of deliberate um, ploy in a way so that, um, you know, we can project other stuff onto it. And it but it has a sort of neutral core, which um, allows all the, all the sort of uh, motifs to develop. And Ruth, you're working as a staff director with Wayne McGregor on this production, really sort of excavating down to what it's really all about. What, what are the big themes with Gluck? Well, you've mentioned some that maybe we haven't explored so much around music being paramount and uh, this wonderful connector of people. But what um, we feel really stand, stood out to us when we were looking at the Gluck piece is that there's this, um, oh, well, I suppose, reform-esque noble simplicity to this story of um, incredible grief and it's something that we can all relate to we, if anyone who's lost someone whether it's a sort of friend or a partner um, who are if out of us who is given the opportunity to bring that person back when we're in the early stages of grief wouldn't um, go to hell to try and get them back and bring them back to us um, and so yeah at its core uh, this is a piece about the hellish journey that we go through when we go through grief. Um, and the wonderful thing about Gluck's story, um, which you'll see tonight, is that it, unlike um, some iterations of the Orpheus myth, ends on a really positive note, um, which is that essentially if um, you go through grief and you accept that you have lost somebody, um, then they will live forever and that love will live forever in your heart, um, which is a really beautiful, beautiful message to come away with at the end of an evening, I think. And do you think from working with it that our experience of grief now is any different from Gluck's in the 18th century, his understanding of it? I, I wouldn't say so, no. There, there's something incredibly universal about, um, about the music um, and I found that I really connected to it personally and, and we all did in the room, so I, I hope that the audience does tonight as well. James, I've been speaking a bit in the introduction about this idea of reform opera, what was changing, and we've heard Gluck's manifesto for what he and Katsubiji were trying to achieve. 
how, how successful are they? What, how do they put those philosophies into practice in this opera? So I think if we, as you, you briefly played a bit of music about what opera was before or just leading up to this, uh, this, this opera that Gluck uh, was trying to achieve spe a specific set of things. So what was, he, what was the norm? Often lots and lots of characters, a huge amount of florid writing, and also just in the terms of the very specific structure of how you navigated the drama, you would have uh, you'd have recitative, basically the kind of uh, the speaking and dramatic interaction of the characters, and then you'd have music was to provide the commentary. And like obviously the the the, the more uh, sorry my phone is going off. I'm just going to turn that off. <laughs> uh, the more complex uh, the emotion, perhaps the more florid the aria. Uh, and the more tempestuous, and particularly, particularly in uh, some of the late Baroque stuff, you might end up with some, some very, very long uh, arias that you then have at a capo, and we hear the A section again. These are, these are all conventions that are kind of very clearly laid out. And, you know, 20, 30 years before uh, the De Ponte Mozart operas, we have Gluck saying, well, I'm not going to have just commentary. I'm going to have the action taking place in the arias. I'm going to have the actions taking place in... Uh, in the accompanied recit, so there's no there's no seco recit. It's all accompanied by the orchestra, uh, and all of those things all of those things are kind of pretty against the grain of the time. We also only have three characters on stage. What uh, what Ruth was just saying about uh, getting inside the the noble simplicity of the piece. Well, we're really reduced to the absolute bare bones. Three in three different characters, all played by women, and all of it is about just telling the story in a very live, immediate way without expending a good five, seven minutes enjoying the basically Olympian e efforts of a singer talking about how unhappy they are. We actually live through the grief in, in its immediacy. So I would say pretty successful. Obviously Gluck's audience would have known the rules that he was breaking. It perhaps would have had greater impact for you. Do you think today, if we're not coming from quite such sort of a knowledgeable place where it comes to handle, can we still feel the, the shock of the new with this piece? I can't answer that question without going on quite a long detour <laughs> of how I personally think about... I think there's a danger... I will say something fairly... Uh, uh, against the grain. I'm not the, I do not have an initial instinctive love of Baroque opera. But I have friends who, <laughs> some of my best friends love Baroque opera. Um, and they can't get inside my head. And the more I think about whenever we have these discussions, that is ultimately a, a, a discussion about the language that the composer is using to express themselves the form in which they're taking it. And you can experience the same stories, the same juxtaposition of the same emotions in different ways that speak to different people. And when I think about the fact that I don't like Baroque opera that much compared to how much I like Mozart operas, I think to myself, isn't that a, just a patently ridiculous question because this is 2019 and this is all 200, 300 years ago, whereas at the time, all of this music was new. And when Gluck wrote this music, it was new. So there was, it, wasn't, it wasn't that we were going, oh, well, and here is a new language that we shall now enjoy. This is how opera shall now be enjoyed. This was, this was groundbreaking and revolutionary at the time. 
And so I, I think we can't experience it as new now. We can only experience it as new in reference to everything we know today. So I am lucky enough to have just done a stage in orchestra of Harrison's, Harrison Burtwistle's The Mask of Orpheus. And I can't get that out of my ears when I hear the Gluck. And I don't mean as in, I, it's just, I think if you put Mozart today, he'd think that the music, music today wasn't music. But that's because he skipped a whole load of music. Whereas we, we are listening to Gluck in the context of everything we know today. So I think my answer to you, and many people might disagree with me, is no. <laughs> <laughs> and Lizzie, part of the, the musical innovation here, um, sorry, Ruth, um, is that dance is newly integrated for the first time. It's not just a divertimento at the end, something lovely to enjoy on your way out, like a sort of, you know, amuse-bouche. It's properly part of the drama. How is that being achieved here? Well, uh, obviously, the wonderful thing about having a choreographer direct the opera is that we really, truly managed to integrate the dance. Um, and even <clears throat> some uh, uh, more well-known productions of Gluck over, of this piece over the years would not have dance being such a kind of big element throughout. Uh, it would be maybe constrained to small pantomimes throughout, peppered throughout the piece or... Um, the big dancers at the end of Act Two and Act Three, um, but with this, it really, really does take centre stage, and 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 that's um, I think uh, really in line with what was going on at the time. Um, uh, we have our um, Algarotti friend talking about uh, delights for the eyes and the ears. Um, it was all about integrating all of these different forms of theatre, and so. Um, to that end, I think um, they are one and the same. Dance, theatre and music are not uh, three separate elements um, of um, what we see on stage. They all have to exist together. But practically, we obviously have practitioners on stage who are singers and we have dancers. Um, perhaps to a modern sensibility, it's, it, although with the boat whistle in mind, perhaps not so much, it's, it's odd for us to have two such sort of discrete kind of teams of people making a story. How is it unified here? Well, um, in terms of the actual process in the room, um, we, it, it has to exist separately initially. So we have uh, lots of much more improvisatory work with the dancers. So Wayne would go away and do um, uh, you know, a couple of weeks actually of, of improvisatory work. Um, and he has a very specific method where he creates this this language with the with the dancers. And the wonderful thing about um, about someone like Wayne is that he has a real understanding of uh, what he calls um, someone's physical handwriting. So he's able to look at the singers, um, watch recordings of the singers, meet the singers, and um, take their physical handwriting and relay that to the dancers, so that they're able to reflect the um, internal and external. Um, feelings and emotions that the, that the characters, uh, the singers, are, are going through, which, in my opinion, really, really elevates and heightens the, the drama. And we've been talking kind of grandly about the score, as if there really is such a thing with this piece. James, obviously it's premiered in 1762, but there's another version from 1774, and there's also a third version from nearly a century later, which is the one we're using tonight. C can you give us some guidance on what we're listening to? This is where I start to worry about doing my homework. Uh, so we have, uh, we have lots of conventions around Italian opera, French opera uh, at the time, and we have uh, different styles of orchestration, and we have different technical abilities of uh, orchestration. Uh, we have 
the version that we hear tonight is the re-orchestrated and rewritten and re-put together version by Berlioz. Just a little bit of, sorry, I'm just gonna get my notes up. Uh, some interest as to why certain things have been done. So many of you might be uh, familiar with the idea of Baroque pitch. So uh, in 17, what was it, 1762, did you say it was? Uh, the pitch was, is quite different to uh, today. It's a lot lower. And uh, in between 1762 and when, when did, did Berlioz do this? 1859, 1859, uh, the pitch of A, uh, which we now call 440, has risen from about uh, from about 415 to over 430, more like 435. And that actually presents some quite significant difficulties for, well, one for the instruments, but also for uh, the singer. So uh, what had often been uh, uh, a part, uh, the Orpheus had been sung by a male alto or a castrato, had now become a female singer, uh, and the part, the music gets rewritten accordingly, and some stuff has been taken down, and and a lot of the the writing changed to suit suit the uh, suit a female voice. We also have the fact that um, uh, the use of trombones throughout the opera. I mean, you'll, you'll hear them in the first chorus. Uh, the the trombone writing in the in Gluck's original is pretty complex, and then uh, and then when it gets rewritten later again, it, a lot of the more complex writing is taken out because of so we say differing levels of trombone skills at the local time, uh, and now a lot of that has been put back in. So the the trombones play a, a big part in the orchestration tonight. There's also lots of versions, uh, different versions of exactly certain different numbers have been done for, by different people in different places. That is a pretty complex story. I know, for instance, that the, uh, in the, we've actually not done the final chorus from Hector Berlioz's version. Uh, so Act 4 does not end with a chorus that I think he put together himself, uh, and things like that. On any performance of this piece, you're going to end up with slightly differing versions of exactly how things are put together. I know that Berlioz, the Berlioz version sticks to the original key scheme that Gluck laid out. So um, just so everyone understands what I mean by that, you you may, when you do a different version of a piece, you end up with uh, a different number that was done for a different for different production that is in a totally different key to the original number that sat there. And that means that you end up with a kind of a, uh, a particularly strange key journey from one number to the other. And given that it's all through composed, that involves some that involves some navigating. How do we get from C minor to F sharp major or whatever? But that, so the original key scheme is there tonight. So the the opening chorus is in C minor, and then the, you know the uh, all the Elysian fields in F major. The like a key very much associated with pastoral music. All of that is the original from Gluck that uh, Berlioz restored, uh, particularly because he felt that the mangling of the music had been mainly to do to technical deficiency rather than musical ideals. Thinking of musical ideals, the fact that everyone has played this role of Orfeo from haute contre, really high tenors, to counter tenors, to female mezzos, what, what are the differences? What do they all bring? And obviously tonight we've got Alice Coote, a wonderful mezzo, singing it. How, how would that be different to hearing a man? So uh, a lot of this music, a lot of the haute contre and a, uh, or a, a very high tenor and, and counter tenor is in the Baroque period or the end of that time would have been associated with our uh, heroic roles. 
So particularly people who take on adversity and come out victorious. Um, and I think that uh, without straying into uh, gender identity and societal norms and all that thing, I think that there is a more emotional directness that you get from hearing uh, a, a, a female voice singing at the pitch that we associate with female voices. So there's the, just a slightly more uh, emotional uh, directness from getting from having a mezzo-soprano sing. Um, and then, of course, there's Alice Coote on top of that. And Ruth, I wonder if you have an opinion. A female physically on stage is a very different presence to a man. As a director, does that change how you conceive the role? Um, I suppose it, it could do uh, if you really, really wanted Orpheus to be a man. But I guess this is such a universal myth that uh, it doesn't... And it's 2019, so it doesn't really matter whether Orpheus is a man or a woman. It's just someone who's lost their partner. So uh, I guess... Um, I, I mean, personally, I, I really like the sound of a mezzo singing it, but that's, that's just preference. And I, and I don't think it necessarily serves the story to make it a, a heterosexual relationship and have it be a, be a, a high tenor. And we've been sort of jumping into the, the detail of the score, but to stand back more broadly, um, can you give us, without giving too much away, a sort of an, a vision into to Wayne's idea of this piece? What's, uh, what's been his concept going in? So, I mean, we spoke uh, a lot about grief. Um, so for those who are aware of the psychology around that, which I, I think basically we all are, um, uh, he's, we've obviously explored the Kubler-Ross model of the five stages of grief quite a lot. Um, and you will definitely notice that very familiar trajectory throughout the, throughout, um, the, the evening. Um, Wayne, when he started looking at the piece, he um, took a huge amount of influence, obviously, from the classical painters and writers. Um, some of the images we've already seen on the screen this evening, actually, you'll notice um, some really... One, so, so, for example, that arm with uh, Eurydice clutching the arm. You'll notice in Act 4 that we, we come back to some of these, these very striking classical images in, in our uh, movement. So that's something nice to look out for. Um, but Wayne also took influence from some more contemporary works. Uh, so Gregory Orr, um, uh, Office and Eurydice, A Lyric Journey, which is this absolutely marvellous poem that everyone must read that we, uh, we all looked at together in the <coughs> rehearsal room. Also people like Margaret Atwood and also Jean Cocteau, who is uh, in, in some ways making an appearance later this season through the Philip Glass Orfei. Um, and I suppose ultimately the concept is around making sure that this uh, internal journey of Orpheus's is as important as any literal journey to hell. Um, so yeah. It's obviously quite unusual to have a choreographer working alone on an opera. There's no director here. Wayne is absolutely shaping it. Do you think that has led to a very different take on the opera? Um, Perhaps. Um, I think dance is, uh, by definition, uh, completely unliteral. Uh, the whole point of dance is that it uses physical expression to uh, explore the limits of our emotions. Um, and just, in, and actually, in much the same way as opera does, uh, we have to suspend our disbelief when we watch people sing because nobody sings uh, their internal thoughts so loudly that they fly above an orchestra um, and in the same way uh, dance does a similar thing so I haven't felt like it's such a big departure working with Wayne um, I think that um, he has inevitably a different process and um, and uh, but it's it I, I think that it's worked out 
really, really wonderfully. <laughs> Can you give us an idea of that process? I mean, when, when working with a singer, is he thinking as much about the physicality of the movement as the emotion? Um, yeah, definitely, because for him, they're the same thing. So uh, we'll do, uh, I mean, table talk like you, uh, like uh, when singers uh, would sit around with the director and discuss the emotions and uh, the, the intention behind everything that they're saying. Um, and we do that just as you would with a, with a theatre director, but a lot of the emotions are uh, led by the uh, movement um, as well as vice versa. They're completely related. Um, so there will always be um, a movement that uh, helps to relate or portray something that someone's feeling. Is there a particular language of movement here that we can... Do we need any help to read it or is it very instinctive when we watch it? I'd say it's pretty instinctive. Um, if there is a specific language being used then uh, that can be defined, then I don't know what it is. <laughs> and Lizzie, with so many dancers on stage, that has quite a, a practical implication for, for the set. Can you talk us through the challenges of that and how you've responded to that here? Um, well, I mean, there are some sort of just real technical challenges. Yeah. So uh, dancers need a specific kind of floor. You know, the dancers are in bare feet this evening. And, um, and so the floor needs to be safe and comfortable <coughs> so they don't injure themselves. So there's a kind of just a real sort of practical level of working with dancers. And then there's, there's a sort of, you know, the way that Wayne wants to work, it, it, he's very interested in space and with dance, it's really about how bodies interact with space and light. You know, so what I'm trying to do is create a space where shapes and emotions can be created through the body and through the body's relationship to objects and light. And that's really what I'm trying to do. And the space is trying to do that. So actually what you'll see tonight is, is something incredibly minimal in terms of design from from as a set designer which is what i am you know what you will see tonight is extraordinary um lighting design and um and video work as well and and extraordinary costumes um which which are magnificent within a very very minimalist space and really sort of work with the body so it's all about the sort of intersection of bodies and space and light and you know, and that's and 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 literal space as well. You know, so there are well, how many dancers are there? Fifty. Um, there something? are fourteen. Fourteen. So mm. fourteen dancers. You know, really sort of very expressive movement. I mean, that you know, you you need to have a big stage. And so actually, the Colosseum stage, you know, often is, you know, one of the sort of drawbacks of this stage is it's so massive. But actually, with fourteen dancers and then three singers on stage as well in order to experience the sort of space the dancers need to, to be with each other, but also to express the emotion of the piece, you need a, a sort of practically large space as well. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's very specific sort of requirements, really, to make it work. And interesting, you mentioned the size of the Colosseum stage. Obviously, Gluck's original would have been premiered somewhere a little bit more intimate. Have you, have you designed it differently because of the scope of having to design for the back of the balcony up here? The, the, it's a wonderful space, this, this place. But one of, the, <laughs> one of the really difficult things about this space is that if you're sitting in the stalls, you're having a completely different uh, experience than if you're sitting at the top here. You know, it's completely different. 
And so when you're up here, you're really, you really get much more of a sense of the enormity of, of the stage. But actually, it's a great place to be for um, visually, for, for Wayne's piece, because um, the, the shapes the dancers are making and the color and the light, and is, it's, it's, it really uses the space very, very well. So, but we have to obviously, you know, there is video and uh, we have to take into account sight lines and, you know, things have to sort of stay quite low. Decisions like that have to be made all the time. You've mentioned, obviously, the role of lighting and projections. Can you talk us through how that works, you know, at the original stages in conversation and conception? Who, who leads the decisions on that? Well, in this scenario, and it's always different every time you work on a different project, in this scenario... Wayne and myself and John, who's the lighting designer, primarily met the three of us right from the very beginning, really, and sort of tried, we shared images, shared ideas, shared experiences, really, um, got to know each other, really, as artists as well. Um, and the three of us very much sort of um, started to find a language which we could all work together. And so we were all working from the same script, if you like. Um, and it, you know, and then, and then, sort of, Wayne is, I guess, as the director, is sort of editing these decisions and conversations as they go along, so we can begin to sort of form a, a final design. And the the elephant in the room in all of this is the chorus, who obviously play quite a large role in the opera, but in this particular production are not going to be on stage. James, can you talk us through the sort of the implications of that? So, I think going to link in with something that. Uh, we've been talking about, particularly with Ruth mentioning the process with the dancers and the physical emotion, uh, is that you might imagine when you're watching on stage and then you're hearing the chorus sing text, kind of slightly, well, they're singing in the orchestra pit, so in a slightly disembodied way, you might imagine, well, hang on, how does that work? Um, but you end up, what I end up feeling when I watch it, and I watch these dancers who are so clearly interacting with Alice or with Sarah, or, uh, there, there's, a, there's a feeling of the, the text and the music being totally one and the same, and that the dancers are expressing the text, even though they themselves are not actually singing. And so yeah. initially, I thought, well, how is this going to work? We, uh, the, the, the first plan was the idea of them just singing off stage, and then actually, you know, Harry really wanted to have them in the pit. And it's made them kind of integral to the production in a totally different way because they're not, they're not leading the drama on stage, but they are absolutely leading the drama uh, in terms of the music and the drama and the text all being just one and the same. Uh, I would say, coming back to your, the specifics of your question, we found it uh, a really initial challenge. I mean, those of you who have heard uh, my dear wonderful chorus sing before will know that uh, they like being on stage and they like being dramatic and they like being quite fiery. And uh, so to put them behind folders with clip-on lights and the score in a, in a pit where more than half the Colosseum won't really see them, it was the big challenge at the end was to make them remember that they have to deliver the drama just as strongly, if not more strongly, in the pit than if they were on stage where they would get to connect what they're saying with how, what, what the director has asked them to do or a particular gesture or a particular movement or, 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 or how any of that. So, you know, you, you put them behind scores and I, they kind of retreat to musical precision mode 
and to actually reconnect them with the live drama whilst having the score in front of them is I mean it's really not something they do every day and so that's been that has been our our huge challenge and I was slightly tearing my hair out after one of the station orchestras about this particular element and then uh, and then Harry Bickett who's, who's our conductor just came up and said said to me we've just got to get them to realize that that they're on stage even though they're not on stage even though they're not on stage and so that was that was really the the, the the big breakthrough moment for them was to make them sing like they're on stage. And singing on stage, off, off stage, on stage, do they still, do they have a character? I think what struck me when I was watching was this idea of disembodied voices in this particular story about spirits and magic was really very powerful. Are they imagining themselves into a role? Well, I mean, that, that, that's almost exactly what I had to say to them. So at the, the, uh, the top of act two, they are, they are furies and... Uh, and uh, Orpheus is coming down and, and traveling in, I mean, uh, they would say, uh, what, what's the words? Um, oh, I've totally forgotten, but um, basically we're saying, uh, we're saying, how dare you come into our underworld? Who is this person to, who has such gall? What rash adventurer. Yeah, what, what rash adventurer, well, great text, well, um, <laughs> uh, comes, come to, comes down into the underworld and that, to get them to sing basically with fiery indignance, something that they, they can do very well, uh, involved me just saying to them, you might not be on stage, but you have to imagine that you are these dancers on stage, outraged at this person who dares to come into this place. And then they have to be totally different after, after the task and say, well, having, having been the various people saying, don't do that, don't cross over, don't, don't you dare uh, come into our place. Once the task is completed, their words are, enter these Elysian fields. And, and the, 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 they use the imperative in, the, in this translation basically the whole time. Enter, go away. All, of, all the instructions are immediate and imperative. So to change how you say, how you sing that, and communicate to the audience that now we're going from basically dramatically this is why I should never direct an opera, but go from finger-wagging to hugging it with their voices is, has, is, is a really, really big challenge. And I, I, would just, um, I would just add to that, actually, um, uh, that I, I listened to something recently where Judith Weir was talking about how she most enjoys hearing her works, even sort of her operas, and I wouldn't want to misquote her, but uh, I believe that's what she said, being performed in a concert setting because you get the most sort of pure version of the music possible. Um, and so we have the benefit of that tonight. I mean, you, you might not want to go and see uh, this opera performed in concert, but you have the opportunity to hear this very sort of... The, this very pure music from the chorus that you might not if they were frankly distracted by doing other things. James just mentioned the Elysian Fields. Obviously at the centre of this opera there are two <coughs> magnificent dancers which we all know such gorgeous music. The Dance of the Blessed Spirits and the Dance of the Furies. What can we expect from those tonight? Um, well, the Dance of the Furies is um, quite rightly very furious, um, and it's 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 definitely a punk rock rather than pitchforks, I would say. Um, and then the Dance of the Blessed Spirits is this absolutely wonderful, beautiful uh, uh, expression of the ephemerality, I guess, and, the, um, and, and yet the immortality of love. And uh, that's explored through a very, very wonderfully diverse range of different dancers who um, uh, explore uh, the different types of, of relationships that, that people, people might have. 
Moving back to the music, James, there are, as we've mentioned, only three characters in this, of which really one is absolutely at the heart of it, Orpheus. How is Gluck using music to really draw us into these, these emotions that are huge from, from the, the word go with this opera? So the most famous aria, uh, Que Faro, which uh, is, ends Act 4, uh, we have, we have an, a rare, very, very clear expression of grief expressed in a major key. And I think that at the time, this was something that really broke conventions. In fact, people said, you know, how does this even work? And I think that the, the main musical journey that Gluck takes us on is one where we really, just we've talking about, where we explore grief in all its forms and come to a not particularly well-defined end so what, what is it, what, what is the journey after grief going to be? It never ends. Those of you who live with grief will know, as um, I do, that it's something that you, you, you live with every day, and yet you carry on. And I think that the, that the journey of the character in the music only really comes to a head, for me, in that final aria, where we explore everything we've been through, and yet it's still unresolved. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a better answer than that because I can't say that I know every bit of the whole role because I've only been really dealing directly with the directly with the chorus music. But the the start, I mean, the, one of the Act Two arias is uh, is lots and lots of um, dramatic coloratura, really exploring absolute extremes of the of the voice to right up to the top G's well below the stave, so you know, almost the full two octaves of a mezzo-sopranos range. We've got a lot of heroism, a lot of, uh, uh, even, even, though, even though we've been talking about these noble ideals of, of what Gluck was trying to achieve, we still have coloratura, florid heroism, and then we also have massive, uh, massively lyrical music that goes against what you even might imagine having read the text the music would be. And I think that that just that shows, a, uh, on Gluck's part, a real deep understanding of, of the emotional content of, of his own music. It's important to know that Gluck was a very untrained composer. Uh, I, uh, whilst not particularly, whilst music history is not my strong point, I did a lot of techniques when I was at university and undergraduates, and he gets a lot of things wrong. Uh, even just harmony-wise, counterpoint-wise, just stuff that does, doesn't quite work, and you go, oh, and then, and then you know, another composer, also not technically that adept, Hector Berlioz, takes, takes him on, and you go, maybe someone slightly more technically adept should have taken this on to kind of, you know, round out the fuzzy corners of the music. And uh, what you end up with something is ex- something that, it, whilst, you know, from a technical point of view, doesn't always perfectly work, you end up with something that's very visceral, and very just what Gluck felt. I mean, Harry Bickett spent the first 20 minutes of the chorus rehearsal just talking about the first four bars. The first thing that they, the first note they sing, the first word they sing is ah. And um, he wrongly claimed that it's the only opera that starts with the word ah, but then we had a competition to name all the other ones that <laughs> do. Um, but it's, it's, very, um, it's very just in your face music. And uh, what I would say, going, linking back to your question, is that the emotional journey that we go through is very direct and not with um, ornamentation or floridness. There's no conventions around this. It's just 
how Gluck felt on a plate for you on stage. Um, and I had one more thing to say. Uh, he, he said about this final aria, he said, if you don't execute it exactly right, it becomes, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but basically a silly dance. And that with done with poise and with the right level of uh, emotional pitching, it should be very, very, very moving. So he was very, very aware of how on a knife edge his music sits and how it could very easily be trite and not how he intended it. So hopefully we'll get that right. We're pushing ourselves for time. There's so much to say. But I wonder, just to finish off, if all of you very quickly could just give us one moment, whether it's visual, whether it's musical, whether it's dance-based, just to look out for tonight that is your, the moment each night that you look forward to seeing or hearing. Lizzie, can we start with you? Um, the, the, there's a bit I look forward to every single time, which is when there's an extraordinary change of lighting state and something magical occurs with the costumes of the dancers and uh, I'll leave you to spot it tonight. <laughs> Ruth? Um, I would say there's a dance and Dance of the Blessed Spirits, which uh, for me is a duet that really communicates what love is about, uh, which I find moving every single time I see it. And James? Uh, the Overture, and actually a change of lighting state in the Overture. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard so much. Can you join me, please, in thanking our wonderful panel? <laughs> <laughs>